All right, I have the uh, immense privilege yet again to um, fill the pulpit one more time and finish out the book of Jonah. So, this morning, let's, we're going to read Jonah chapter 4. <clears throat> As a quick review, Jonah is the prophet of God, and we're introduced to him in 2 Kings. We'll read that a little bit from 2 Kings this morning. And Jonah receives the commission to go to Nineveh, a great city, and Jonah disobeys. He runs the opposite direction. He gets on a boat heading to Tarshish, and the Lord hurls a great wind toward his prophet to rein him back. And that stormy encounter results in those sailors of that ship being saved and Jonah being thrown into the sea. But that wasn't the end for Jonah. That wasn't death for Jonah. That wasn't just his final scene. That was what we called the eucatastrophe, the moment in the, in the story when Jonah is swallowed by the great fish that we realize there's more to this than what we may have assumed. Just don't disobey God, right? So Jonah gets swallowed by this great fish and miraculously preserved in this judgment. Salvation in judgment. And three days and three nights go by and, jo and God tells the great fish to vomit Jonah back onto dry land. And Jonah comes back to dry land again. And in the beginning of chapter 3, it says, the word of the Lord came the second time to Jonah. God gives grace. And he tells again, he commissions again his prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh and give them the message that he has given to Jonah to proclaim, to give the proclamation that Jonah is supposed to proclaim. And Jonah goes to Nineveh in chapter 3, and he says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Overturned. That's all that we are told Jonah says. And day one of this forty-day proclamation, day one of this time that Jonah spends in Nineveh, everybody, including the king, believes. Everybody believes, repents. And the king issues a proclamation and says, everybody fast, put on sackcloth and fast. Your animals, even your animals, and pray that this God would have mercy on us. And you know what it tells us in chapter 3 is that God did have mercy on them. God relented from the disaster that he said he would do to Nineveh, and he did not do it. And chapter 4 begins like this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, 
Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And Yahweh said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now Yahweh God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of this plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And as we open it this morning, would you open our hearts and open our minds? Lord, bend our stiff necks. Let us hear. Let us trust. Let us obey. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Jonah chapter 4, we come now to the final scene of the story. And Jonah is displeased at Nineveh's repentance and Yahweh's forgiveness extended to them. But why? Why is, why would Yahweh's prophet, why is Jonah angered by this nation repenting of their evil and violence and turning to Yahweh? Why would Jonah be sore displeased at this exceptional prophetic and evangelistic success? One day in and... They believe. Why? Why is he angry? Well, to answer that question, we need to go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. So if you have your Bibles and you want to go with me there, go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Otherwise, you can listen. And Deuteronomy 32, verses 15 through 21, the song of Moses is key to understanding Jonah's response to God's commission to go to Nineveh. It says this, starting in verse 15, Deuteronomy chapter 32. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods and abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. 
and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And verse 22 says, For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. This is key to understanding why Jonah ran from Yahweh when he told him to go to Nineveh. Jeshurun is a symbolic name for Israel who grew fat and kicked. Remember, Jonah prophesied about Israel and about the mercy and the blessing they would receive. He prophesied at a time of peace. And they actually, Israel actually received blessing in spite of their great sin. They grew fat and kicked and forsook God and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Israel stirred God to jealousy with strange gods and provoked him to anger with abominations, sacrificing to demons. Israel was unmindful of the rock that bore them, and they forgot the God who gave them birth. These sons and daughters, Israel provoked God to spurn them and hide his face from them from that perverse generation. They provoked God to anger with their idols, and so God provoked them to anger with another people, another nation, a foolish nation, we are told. In 2 Kings, in 2 Kings, the charges are laid out against Israel and um, and the charges are kind of laid out for God's judgment. And that's the passage um, where we see what God says. Remember in Jonah, the, he uses this word over and over, great, 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 great. He calls all these things great throughout the book. But um, one thing he does not call great in that book, and that was Nineveh's sin. Nineveh's sin went up to God. It was a stench in God's nostrils. And so God sent Jonah to cry out against Nineveh. But In Jonah, Nineveh's sin is never called great. In this passage in 2 Kings 17, Israel's sin is called great. And listen to this portion from that. You can read verses 6 through 23 to see that. We're not going to read all of that right now, but listen to just this portion starting in verse 16. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divinations and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. 
Verse 19, Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. And the people of Israel walked in all the, in the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Israel was in great sin. And so God provoked Israel to jealousy with a foolish nation, with Nineveh. Jonah ran from God's commission because Jonah knew that, that, that this is what was happening. Judgment was coming to Israel. Grace and mercy were going to Nineveh. Israel did not heed the voice of Jonah. They did not heed the voice of the other prophets. And so when God took counsel with his prophet to send him to another nation, Jonah knew well what that meant. Judgment was coming to the house of Israel. And of course, that didn't mean that Yahweh was abandoning Israel. We know we, can, we have the benefit of seeing hindsight. We see the history of Israel. God was not abandoning Israel, no. As Paul says in Romans, if Israel's cutting out was salvation for the world, just imagine what they're being brought back in will mean. Of course, God was always preserving for himself a faithful remnant. Jonah's sinful response was not surprising to God. And we should understand that from Deuteronomy 32. That is exactly what Jonah, I mean, what God prophesied his people would do. Be angry. Jonah's response was not a surprise to God. Jonah was greatly displeased and, and he was very angry. And it's impossible for us to hear this in the English, but in the Hebrew, there is a play on words that's going on here. So biblically speaking, evil can mean more than just moral evil. We, in our English language, we think of evil and we... Um, very rarely can think of it apart from a moral aspect. But biblically speaking, the word is much broader. Um, and so evil is used to describe disaster or calamity as well as pain or discomfort or grief, like that grieves me. And so the play on words goes something like this, beginning in Jonah 3.10. When Yahweh sees that Nineveh turns from their evil... From their ra, is the Hebrew word, Yahweh relents from the ra that he said he would do to them, but it was a great ra to Jonah. So we have this play on words. Nineveh is abandoning their evil. God is turning from his evil, his disaster that he said he would do. But in all of that turning, Jonah is turning to ra, to evil. Nineveh repents of their evil ways. Yahweh relents from the disaster, but all of that turning and repenting, all of that mercy is a great evil 
a great pain, a great discomfort, a grief to Jonah, God's prophet. Jonah is yet again setting himself up against Yahweh. Yahweh is going to mercy. Jonah is going to wrath, to judgment, anger. Yahweh has relented from evil. Jonah picks it up. Yahweh stops being angry. Jonah starts being angry. Yahweh is quick to forgive, quick to love this foolish nation, and Jonah is quick to anger. In chapter 1, the word comes to Jonah, but he runs. In chapter 3, the word comes again, and this time Jonah goes and obeys. There's, a, there's like a parallel here. Um, in chapter 2, Jonah prays from the belly of the great fish, and what does he do? He exalts the salvation of Yahweh. He says, salvation is of the Lord, and he exalts the salvation of Yahweh. But now here in chapter 4, he does not exalt in the salvation of the Lord. Instead of praising it, he is angry at the salvation that belongs to the Lord. Remember, prophets are those with whom God takes counsel. They are friends of God. God takes counsel with his prophets. And Yahweh comes to Jonah and he gives him his word, but, but Jonah did not prefer God's word. He did not trust God's word. Jonah preferred his own word. Jonah wanted his own way. Listen to what he says to Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, was this not my word? Was this not my word when I was yet in my country? You hear the pride dripping off of this chat back to God, this back talk? Oh, Yahweh, was not this my word when I was yet in my country? Jonah is setting his word over against God's. And that's obvious to us in our English translations, isn't it? It's obvious to us even just when we read that. But the way that it was originally written in the Hebrew, it is communicated even more masterfully. Um, I don't read Hebrew, um, so I relied on the help of amazing commentators, Yuri Brito and Rich Lusk. Apart from that commentary, I would not have been able to know this myself. Jonah's first speech in the Hebrew text of chapter 4 has 39 words. God's last speech in the book has 39 words. In verse 4, God's question has three words to which Jonah responds with three words. In verse 9, Jonah answers five words to God's five words in the same Verse. The way the author has masterfully written this book is confirming what we can see and what we can understand in our, in our own reading, in our own language, that Jonah was setting himself up against Yahweh. Jonah was setting himself up against God as his own little God. Proud, unrepentant sinners want to be in God's position always. We want to be supreme. We want to speak words Proud, unrepentant sinners want to speak words that must be obeyed by the entire universe, including God. 
we want to drive down the road and have the entire universe revolve around us. We want to speak words that the entire universe must obey. When Nineveh received mercy on day one, this angered Jonah just as quick. He insisted on his way, his word. And yet in a testament to God's long-suffering, God's patience, he is slow to anger. Yahweh chose to take 40 days from his warning until he would bring wrath upon judgment upon Nineveh. 40 days. Day one, Jonah is angry and he wants to die. Jonah is immediately filled with wrath and indignation and anger at the repentance when Yahweh is immediately merciful. Isn't that amazing? The holy, holy, holy God is immediately merciful to this foolish nation. Jonah is angry enough to die, we are told, and he has, a, uh, he has a death wish, and he asks Yahweh, the creator and sustainer of life, to end his life. Jonah claims to know better than God. And Yahweh asked him, do you do well to be angry? And this should remind us of God's probing question to Adam and Eve when they sin in the garden. Adam and Eve Sin in the garden, and God comes, and he says what to them? He says, where are you? Do we think for one moment that God didn't see where they were hiding behind their bush? Did we think, do we think for one moment that God did not know where they were? Of course he knew. He was asking this question for them to answer. Where are you? This should remind us of the question God asked Cain after he murdered his brother. Yahweh is not asking because he doesn't know the answer to these questions. He's asking because in his mercy, he wants Jonah to know where he is. He wants Jonah to consider his ways. He wants Jonah to think, do I do well to be angry? He's asking Jonah, will you persist in your rebellion or will you relent? Will you profess, Jonah, salvation is of the Lord or will you continue to insist that salvation should belong to you? you, Will you profess that salvation is of the Lord or do you want it to be a matter of human effort? Jonah's initial anger in all of this interaction so far took place while Jonah was still in Nineveh. And in verse 5, we see now he moves out of the city to the east. An eastward movement in the Bible is a movement away from the presence of God. We see Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden to the east, and the way back in was on the east side, so they had to turn and go west to get back. In the tabernacle, it was set up this way. The temple was set up this way. The entrance was on the east side, and to get back into the presence, you had to go west. 
To go east was to go away from the presence of God. And now Jonah, again, is going away from the presence of God. All of that being said, Jonah has once again put himself in a bad orientation, outside looking in, angry at the reconciliation. Does that remind you of another outside looking in story? Think of the prodigal son, the lost son. The lost son returns, repents, comes back, is reconciled to the father, and the older brother is sitting outside looking in, angry at this reconciliation. Why? Why? At first, Jonah was like the lost brother who, want, who runs away and squanders what the father gave, and now he's like the older brother, angry and jealous at the loving kindness of the father who forgives. Out to the east of the city, Jonah makes himself a booth there. And he sat under it in the shade to watch and see what would become of the city. And the word used for Jonah's booth is a word, sukkah, and it's descri- it describes a kind of temporary structure that would provide a covering or a shade. And it's the same word that is, that is associated with what Israel was to construct to celebrate the week-long Feast of Booths. That's what we just got done celebrating. I think, we, are we still in it? I don't know. We just had it, or we're still in it or something. The Feast of Booths. And the, Israel was commanded to celebrate this Feast of Booths for seven days. And they would dwell in these booths. They weren't tents. They were made to be these structures. And on top of the structures, you were supposed to put branches. And so the idea was it wasn't watertight. It wasn't watertight. You could see through it. And this is, this is what Jonah makes. He makes a booth. Now, let's talk for just a minute about the Feast of Booths. This, the Feast of Booths is sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles. Or it's um, called in Exodus 34, 22, the Feast of Ingathering. And it was, a booth that was, uh, it was a feast that celebrated the very first feast of unleavened bread. When Israel came out of Egypt, remember they come out, they have Passover that night, the angel of death passes over, and they come out of Egypt quickly, and they, they camp at a place called Succoth, which literally means booths. It's related to this word, booth. And the first camp with Israel and this, what we are told is a mixed multitude, a mixed multitude was the first feast of unleavened bread. And after that first Passover in Egypt, they come out and they dwell at Succoth. And it's the first feast of unleavened bread there. And so the feast of booths then is given at the end of the year to commemorate that feast of unleavened bread. Where Yahweh made Israel to dwell not under bondage, where he made them to dwell not under judgment, but under his glory, under his cloud. This glory cloud that covered them. And so the feast was meant to be this individualized celebration of what was happening to the whole nation. Each family was to construct for themselves this little firmament, this little cloud booth 
And remember, Israel was not, the worshipers could not go beyond the bronze altar in the tabernacle or in the temple. They couldn't go to God's glory. They couldn't reach that presence. But in this Feast of Booths, it was a celebration that every Israelite and the mixed multitude that was with them would come right up to that glory. Right up to that glory. Right up to that cloud, that firmament themselves. And so they were not watertight dwellings. They were open and the water from above could get in. In John 7, 37 through 39, we see Jesus actually stands up on the last day, the great day of this feast, and he cries out, this is what he says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And in verse 39, we're told that Jesus said that the living water that will flow out of us is the Holy Spirit. And so this Now, you see how this celebration then makes you, you, a little cloud from which that water from the Spirit can flow. Where? To the nations. Everywhere we go now, everywhere you go, you you now are this little cloud of God's glory that is water everywhere you go, water to the nations. And there is so much symbolism in the Feast of Booths and all these things. Jesus comes in, remember the triumphal entry? They throw palm branches down. He's riding in on the clouds. There's so much we can't even get to all of this. But another interesting feature of this feast is that all the nations were to participate This is called the Feast of Ingathering, and it looked toward the day when all of the nations, all of the families of the earth would be gathered under the cloud of God's glory. In fact, in Zechariah 14, 18, it names no rain as a judgment if the nations do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths, the Feast feast of Ingathering. If the nation does not go up, they will not receive rain. Makes sense, right? You don't go where the cloud is, you don't get the water. So there's also in the feast a total of 70 bulls that were to be sacrificed. And those 70 bulls were a picture, a representation of the 70 nations that we see listed out in Genesis 10. And it was a picture of all the world. All the world. So with all that in mind, let's get back to Jonah's story. Jonah sits in the shadow under his booth. And just like Yahweh prepared the great fish, Yahweh now prepares a plant to come up over Jonah, to make a shadow over him. We can see that Jonah's story also paints these dueling contrasts between Jonah's will and Yahweh's will. Jonah's word and Yahweh's word. Jonah's work, his booth, and Yahweh's work, the plant. There's the shelter, there's the shadow that Jonah makes for himself, and then there's the shadow that Yahweh prepares for him. And this is a good contrast between our own effort and God's work. 
And, the, and if you think about Jonah's dilemma, this is the perfect way to answer Jonah's dilemma. Remember, Jonah's dilemma is how can God be merciful and true? How can God be merciful when we deserve wrath? How can God be merciful and true where people actually get what they actually deserve? And before the cross, we must understand that this was a genuine and cosmic dilemma. The law given through Moses could show us a picture of how holy God was and how unholy we were. But it could not make us holy. The law could show us the contrast between death and life, but it could not make us alive. But now in Jesus Christ, the Father has shown us and made known to us grace and truth. In Jesus Christ, we see grace and truth. Yahweh prepares this plant to speedily pop up over Jonah. And just as quick, Jonah grows so attached, attached to this shadowy blessing that he believes he is owed this blessing. He believes he deserves it. And he continues sitting and sulking in his rebellion. Just like Israel, who loved Yahweh's merciful and undeserved blessings, but would not repent and turn to him. However, Yahweh is not finished preparing things for Jonah. And so next, he prepares a worm to quickly destroy the plant. As quickly as it pops up, the worm destroys it. And Yahweh prepares then a scorching east wind, and the sun beats down on Jonah's head, and he was faint once more, and he wanted to die. Poor thing. Now, again, there's much symbolism here. First, historically, the plant is like the great fish. It's another picture of Assyria, which will be salvation for Israel for a time. It will be God-appointed, God-prepared salvation for Israel for a time until the worm, or Satan, will eat Assyria up and cause her to fall away. That's what the book of Nahum is about. And then there's also the symbolism of what Jonah is asking for from the beginning. A world where he gets mercy and everyone else gets truth. Jonah makes himself a shade, but then after God gives him the plant, Jonah's exceedingly glad. But when God takes that plant away from Jonah, a plant that he had nothing whatsoever to do with, Jonah, now Jonah is angry enough, and he wants to die. Jonah wants mercy for Israel. Jonah wants mercy for himself. He wants mercy for this worm-devoured plant that he had nothing to do with, but he wants no mercy for Nineveh. All of a sudden, after Yahweh gives Jonah, the son of truth, a very small and brief taste of getting what he actually deserves a very small and brief taste of getting what Jonah actually deserves, which is nothing good from God. Jonah doesn't like it at all. 
But Jonah, I thought you cared about people getting what they deserved. How did Jonah reckon with deserving the plant? He didn't deserve the plant. He knew he didn't deserve the plant, and yet he wanted it anyway. He wanted mercy for himself, for Israel, and truth, justice, judgment for everybody else. But there's still the open-endedness of this story. And the last question that Yahweh poses after the plant and the worm incident now seemed, it seems more like it's a rhetorical one, doesn't it? It's meant to probe Jonah's heart. And notice that just as Nineveh's fast and repentance included the animals, so did Yahweh's question and his deliverance, didn't it? So when we consider, remember, Jonah's name means dove. Jonah is the story of the dove being sent out over the waters. And when we think about these animals that are brought into God's salvation, it should make us think of what? Noah's Ark, right? Just like Jonah had been saved from the waters that were overtaking him by the great fish prepared for him, Yahweh had also prepared a great salvation for Nineveh and for the animals. What is that about? It's showing the great mercy of God, but it's also showing the cosmic scale of the salvation. This is more than just about this people. This is about a new creation. Why wasn't Jonah rejoicing at this great salvation? Why was Jonah, think about it, picture it for a moment. Jonah's sitting in his booths, in his own little feast of booths, the feast of ingathering all by himself. It's like having Thanksgiving all by yourself. It's like having communion all by yourself. It's like trying to have a marriage ceremony all by yourself. He's sitting in his feast of booths all by himself, upset about the ingathering of the nations. It's upside down. It's inside out. He's sulking at the salvation instead of rejoicing at the salvation. Yet when he was by himself in that great fish, what was he doing? Rejoicing greatly at that salvation. Jonah is just like this older brother in the lost son parable. Why was he angry? Why was the the older brother angry? He's outside looking into this celebration. And there was nothing that older brother was seeing that was not freely his. At that party... There was nothing that older brother was seeing that was not freely his. Yahweh was not flaunting this great mercy for the younger son that was withheld from the older brother. And this is exactly what the father tells his son. Why are you upset? This is all yours. Why is Jonah upset at this mercy and this salvation? It's all yours, Jonah. It's Israel's Jonah. He wanted mercy for Israel. And you know what? Yahweh was going to grant it. Of course. But Jonah's problem was just like that of the older brother. And it was that the father's mercy didn't come on his terms. And we can legitimately point to Jonah's immorality and we can see what 
he should have done, or we can see what we should do in a similar situation, right? We rejoice at the salvation of sinners, at the mercy of God when he draws men to himself. But at the same time, Jonah's response is exactly in line with what Yahweh prophesied. And remember what the purpose was. The purpose was to provoke Israel to jealousy, just like they had provoked God to jealousy. Yahweh's purpose, just like the father of the two lost sons, wasn't to flaunt something that he didn't want Israel to have. He wanted Israel to have mercy. Mercy was Israel's. Did they want it? Yahweh's purpose was to demonstrate to Israel what was theirs by grace, to be faithfully received, not rebelliously, presumptuously assumed. Should Yahweh not pity Nineveh? Should Yahweh not be at least, at least as concerned with Nineveh as Jonah was for this plant? That's the absurdity of the situation. Jonah wants God to have pity on this plant. And God says, should I not be at least as concerned with Nineveh as you are for this plant? Jonah, his problem is not that he wanted justice. Jonah's problem is that he wanted justice and mercy selectively applied. And you know what another name for that is? Injustice. Justice selectively applied is injustice. Ju a judge who is swayed by his own bias and prejudice is a judge, is an unjust judge. Justice selectively applied is injustice. And that's what Jonah actually wanted. Jonah wasn't concerned with truth with a capital T. Jonah wanted his own version of truth to be the standard for the entire universe, including for Yahweh himself. He couldn't kill Yahweh, so he wanted Yahweh to kill him. As we conclude the book of Jonah, it's important for us to consider what this story is meant to be. It is historical. It happened in history. It's historical, and therefore there is a cautionary element to it that we can and we should glean. Do not disobey Yahweh. That's good advice. Trust and obey him and do not insist on your own foolish ways no matter what your emotions are leading you to believe and do. That is solid advice. Trust him, obey him, not your own emotions, not your own emotional impulses. Trust Yahweh. The book is also prophetic. And as we saw from Jonah's running away, it was a message not just for Nineveh then, was it? It was a probing message for Israel. It was a dramatization of the judgment to come, but also a dramatization of the undeserved salvation 
that Yahweh would work for his people in the place of that judgment. Assyria would be that great fish of salvation, that plant that would cover them for a time, but not perpetually. Eventually, Assyria would fall. It would be corrupted. The book is full, Jonah is full of types and shadows and symbols. There's the symbolism that Jonah and Israel of that day were meant to see. The great fish, the plant representing Assyria. But there's also the typological drama of death and resurrection. Jesus hearkens back to the sign of the prophet Jonah as a reference to his own death and resurrection and what he would do after he was resurrected and taking the good news to the nations, to the world. We see that typological drama of death and resurrection, of rebellion and redemption, of judgment and mercy. We see it here with these echoes tethering it to other Old Covenant and New Covenant stories, accounts all over the Bible. We talked about some of those echoes. Remember the end of the Gospel of John when Peter, Simon, the son of Jonah, emerges from the sea back onto dry land and receives his commission again. These these are echoes that give us greater insights into the depth of Yahweh's wisdom and loving kindness, as well as the just severity of his wrath. These stories reveal to us more clearly who he is and what he has done, especially in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whom is grace and truth. We can't see grace as rainbows and puppy dogs Green meadows with flowers and sunshine all the time. Sometimes grace comes to us at the bottom of the ocean, in a fish, in Sheol, under the mountain, in the valley of the shadow of death. These stories show us what God is like and what he has done in Jesus The greatest salvation ever worked for his people was the darkest day imaginable. It's also an encouragement to us who find ourselves foolishly following Jonah's rebel path. Vain running. Yahweh has been telling these stories throughout history from creation and just as his prophets were meant to be dramatizers and not just speakers of words, Yahweh called Israel to dramatize these things in their holy convocations, in their feasts. And now, even as Yahweh has opened up the veil through Jesus Christ and made a new Israel through his son, as a nation of prophets, Priests and kings, we too are dramatizers, holy dramatizers. We too are to dramatically convey Yahweh's message to the world, not just with our words, but through our lives. Through walking through valleys of shadow, through storms, 
through receiving undeserved mercies, through sickness, through death, through prosperity, through victory, through all of these things throughout your life, you tell his story. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Please stand and receive your charge. Your charge is this. Consider who you are in this story Yahweh is telling. Consider who you are in the story Yahweh is telling. Let his probing questions ring in your ears and prompt you today. Prompt you to stop running and hiding, to choose life, to rule over the sin that crouches at your door. Where are you? Where are you? Is it right for you to be angry? You are a character in Yahweh's story, and you're not being coerced to be something or someone that you do not want to be. You're not being coerced into doing something that you do not want to do. So, what will you choose this day? What will you do now? What part do you want to play? Do you want mercy? Or do you want to sit outside looking in? Do you want to play the part of the proud and rebellious or the humbled, forgiven follower? You know the Christian answer. You know the Christian answer. But before you just answer the Christian answer, consider what that means for you today. Consider what it will mean for you this week. What will it actually literally mean for you to be humbled, to walk in his forgiveness, to walk with Yahweh, your God? Will it mean out loud confession and accountability? Will it mean putting away the excuses you've been making for yourself and for your family? Will it mean no more obeying your emotional impulses or desires and instead mean fiercely obeying Christ? Whatever it means for you today, I charge you to take up your cross and receive his mercy and then do it all again tomorrow and do it all again the next day and the next until that glorious day that is coming quickly when you will stand before your Lord at the cusp of unfathomable joy and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.